All right. Well, welcome to the standalone podcast. And uh, my name is, is Robin Abadie. And currently, I serve as the directional pastor at Christ City Church. And yet I'm also interviewing someone who is currently serving as the interim directional pastor of Christ City Church. So you actually have two directors, uh, pastoral, wait, what's the term again? Directional pastors. Directional pastors. <laughs> when you when you have two of them, there's too many directions <laughs> and you get confused. <laughs> so, so, and, um, but... Uh, you know, the short of that is I'm, 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 I'm rolling off and Jamin is, he's staying put and actually rolling on to and into this role this month. And, um, and you know, this is a, a good friendship, a close friendship, a long friendship. And when we were discussing just all that's happening right now in this moment, not just with transitions at our church, but the upheaval and the the crying out of so many things culturally around race and with Jamin you being a black man taking on this role of leading this church in this way a church that's predominantly white um, in a city like Memphis where you know the blood's in the ground and it's, it's in our history and so it just felt like there were so many things that we just needed to to make time to talk about in long form because, you know, you've been making, you've been busy making some videos and doing some things that we'll be putting out. But we also talked about having something long form that we're, we're I could just ask questions, you could just talk, we could just kind of riff back and forth and, and really kind of tease out a lot of things here. So, all that being said, I'm sitting here with Jamin in the Christ City Church studio, fifth floor of uh, uh, Playhouse on the Square. And uh, this is our podcast of talking about racial justice and all things that encompass that. So I'm glad to be sitting here with you, bud. Thanks. Thanks for doing this, Robin. And just to, just to add to the, the amount of things going on, the studio required a, <laughs> a temperature check on the way up and masks. So we're, we're fully in the midst of a pandemic on top of all yeah. the other challenging things we're talking about this morning. And it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. That human beings have the capacity uh, to engage with with so much hurt and pain and um, emotion. Yep. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we're making time for this. And Matt Brown also, um, jack of all trades, master of many, extraordinaire, is handling our recording. And we are social distanced from one another. If anybody's wondering. Yep. We so sure are. Everybody is. Got a yeah. nice little six-foot triangle going on here. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so I want to jump right in, though, and I have a series of questions I want to ask you, Jamin, but we're just going to kind of just let things flow and, and go. And for everybody listening, this is not meant to be some kind of succinct, perfect, you know, uh, explanation of everything. This is, this is meant to kind of get into the footnotes of you as a person, right? Like what's kind of what's built over the years for you to kind of be where you are. Um, and, and, and really so that people who are at this church at Christ city church moving forward, they kind of know like what we're, what the church is about and the things the church wants to engage with. So all that being said, and this sounds like a really basic question because it is, but it's really in depth. Okay. And here's the question. Who are you, Jamin? 
And and with that, let me let me just kind of say what I mean when I say that. How did you come to be a pastor and an activist? Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good question. Um, yeah, you know, you're you're really clear, Robin, at saying, you know, I'm a I'm a black pastor, you know, but I've 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 struggled with my racial identity for for a long time having uh, a black dad and, and a white mom. And uh, I can even remember being uh, in middle school and filling out the standardized test. Uh, and there was an option for race and ethnicity. And it was like black, white, Asian, and other, or something, you know, uh, Native American and other. And that was about the only choices at the time. And I can remember saying, I'm not an other. And filling in half of the black bubble and half of the white bubble. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and so being, <clears throat> being conscious of that and uh, slow, having a slow revelation, you know, James Baldwin says, you don't, you're not born knowing you're black. You kind of you figure it out in like a slow series of revelations a lot of times based on h- how you recognize the world's treating you. And, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know what, what that timeline looks like for most people, but I can remember, you know, forgetting my lunch and my mom coming to the cafeteria and people asking me if I was adopted and, uh, that kind of thing. And I can remember having, it seemed like I thought it, I thought there was just something wrong with me or like just something deficient about me that I seemed to get hostility from white people and black people on certain levels. Hmm. And um, so, and my parents didn't talk a lot, a lot about race. Uh, but as, as, I, as I got older, you know, uh, and continued to kind of learn about the place that was already set for me in, in society, I, I feel like I had to start making more intentional choices about myself racially and where I fit. So there was just all kinds of cues that I didn't understand and, and didn't really know who to talk to about um, growing up. And um, that, that's, part of, that's, that's part of my journey is just a series of these anecdotes that um, led me to be slowly more and more conscious of the role that race was playing in my life, even when, even when I was unaware of it. Well, I can relate to, I can relate to having to fill out those questions of race as well. Yeah. being biracial yeah. and, um, and not knowing what to check. Right. And it's so interesting to me how, how where you were, even at that young, that something in you though was, was, it was just a lot. It was like both sides, yeah. but also like clearly finding a side that you most identified with within yourself as well. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I can remember, because like, when I think about it and I look back, I don't remember having a racial understanding of my parents. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't think my dad's black and my mom's white. Mm-hmm. Like it just really, I didn't think about that. It was just mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's interesting to have to kind of navigate that space and, and hear people because depending on where I was, in what context I was in, people would say, oh, well, that's Jamin. You know, he's the black guy or he's the white guy. I would, I would get both depending on 
what extreme I was in, which, yeah. as you can imagine, could be confusing. Yep, absolutely. And um, but as I as I learned about things like the one drop law, you know, in in the United States, if you had a drop of black blood, like you were you were categorized black, and and, the, and those types of things, and hmm. um, realizing that, yeah, that there is, um, you know, there is pigmentation. Uh, and, and shades of racism, depending on how dark or light you are. But there mm-hmm. is a, you know, if you, if you, there, and there's a thing of like passing for white, you know, oh, well, uh, yeah. which you know I don't, I obviously don't, can't do. But um, just just becoming aware of, you know, society has pretty much placed me in the black category, and it's not really my decision, but I'm going to embrace it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so yeah, when I, when I fill out forms as an adult, I don't, I don't try to bubble in half of anything. I just, I just fill out the black, uh, the black bubble. That's beautiful. And, and it sounds hard. Like I I can relate that on my outsides, clearly it's a Middle Eastern man, right? My insides though are very white in that what I grew up in. Right. And, and still learning to try to reconcile those things in me in my own journey. But I... That's what I, I love with you. There's such solidarity within yourself, even with where you came from, like of, of, of both black and white. And yet you have come to a real clarity within yourself um, and speak. And, and that's led you, like it seems, like today when I look at you, very clear on who you are and clear of where you came from and clear about your, specifically your, your black heritage and all that you, you've come from in that. And, you know, when I met you years ago, you were a teacher who was an activist. Yeah. Right? Like, that was it. And you, you kind of, you always were pastoral, and you had a house church and things like that. But yeah. those were the kind of two areas. But, you know, you kind of more to this thing being an activist and a pastor. And I'd be curious kind of what that journey looked like for you coming into that, those two roles and who were who were some of the influencers to help you find that voice and that clarity along the way? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up uh, going to church and mostly like more charismatic churches, like an assemblies of God church. So my, my dad's mom on on the black side of my family, uh, they were Kojic church of God in Christ. And um, it's a, it's a it's a black denomination that is is very charismatic and very conservative and um, I think it was founded here in Memphis, coach. Right. Yes. And um and so I guess, you know, when my parents met, my dad took my mom to the Kojic church and eventually I guess somewhere along the way they decided, you know, to go to the Assemblies of God church, which is actually the white counterpart of Kojic. So right. the, the story is a black and a white pastor went to the Azusa Street, what became the known as the Azusa Street Revival in California. And they were both from Memphis and they came back and this was in se- segregation era. And they came back and they wanted to start a church together, but they, they couldn't find a way to do it. And so those two denominations were formed. Interesting. And those two denominations are my heritage. How about that? Through my, through my grandmother and my father and through the the other 
sort of experiences I had religiously, but but primarily growing up, we were we and we we traveled a lot because of my dad's job. Um, we spent time in a lot of assemblies of God churches, and so I had experiences. I had I spoke in tongues when I was like ten years old in um, in in this assemblies of God church out in the sticks of Georgia outside of Atlanta. <laughs> And, and it was, and it was, it was, it was the, the realest thing I knew about God at the time. I mean, I, I went, I was going, man. And, uh, and it, it came on me. It was. I jokingly tell people as growing up, I spoke in tongues better in, than I did in English for the church I grew up in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. I, yeah, that was a big thing in that church. And there were the same people that would speak in tongues, you know, um, uh, every Sunday. Uh, there was, I remember there was this, this, uh, African guy and he always would stand up and speak in tongues. And this lady over here, this old lady would always like prophesy and, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of things. And, um, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, I grew up in that. And, and then when we would visit my, my dad's side of the family, I'd have other church experiences. I, and I can remember my uncle Pete who passed away last year. Um, he had an off, off and on again, preaching, uh, a career and being in church all day, you know, mm-hmm. um, with him and there being a line of preachers up, you know, at the <laughs> front and every one of them, I remember thinking like when I realized my little 12 year old self realized every one of these dudes is going to preach before we leave today. <laughs> um, so I had, I had all those kind of experiences in the church and, uh, when I was 18, we were in just this non-denominational church in the suburbs of, it wasn't Cordova, it was even past Cordova. And, and it was just, it was, it was just, um, I don't know, I, I don't want to say it in a disparaging way, but there just wasn't any like real flavor to the church. It was that seeker sensitive kind of thing. Yep. And it was just trying not to step on anybody's toes about anything, mm-hmm. you know, and there's dating series and all those kinds of things. Yeah. But I went on a missions trip to South America when I was 18 or uh, to Venezuela. That's in, that's in, uh, that's in South America. South America, yeah. And that, this is with the Assemblies of God Church? This was with the non-denominational church Sorry, when it. I was a teenager uh, that, we, that we went to. And, um, and I was really compelled by that. And I felt like I, I wanted to be a missionary. And um, my folks and other people said, well, like, you just you need to go to college first. And, uh, and I wasn't really that interested in college, um, but I figured I'll go for a little while and just kind of see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I had a, this is, this would be a whole nother side story, but I had an ROTC scholarship. What? Yeah. An army ROTC scholarship. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. If my, the you now knew what to say yeah. to the you then. <laughs> yeah. My parents were convinced I lacked direction and they, uh-huh. they convinced me to, to oh, sign up man. for this thing and I thought well there's no way I'll get it so sure I'll sign up and they'll leave me alone about it and then I got a scholarship offer at two colleges in Michigan where my folks had moved during my senior year of high school and I stayed in Memphis um, so there's you know there's oh, a lot the there yeah it's the short story is I I realized quickly that wasn't gonna work for me I wasn't <laughs> the kind of guy to, to to follow those kind of orders from people and that kind of thing uh-huh. And uh, so I spent a few years in college just messing around, and I thought I'd become a stuntman for a minute, and 
Um, remember my dad begging me on the phone just to get my associate's degree and and stuff like that because I had looked up the schools and I was going to go. And... <laughs> I didn't know this part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man! So, um, but when when I was twenty one, I was I made it back to Memphis. I was going to school part time, working full time. I just broke up with a girl and that kind of messed me up real bad. And I went to the youth pastor, an adult pastor of that old church. And I said, Hey, here's, I've been living this, I've been living fast and loose, man. And it's, and it's not getting me anywhere where I want to be. And I think I need to repent. And, uh, that's the only thing I really know what to do right now. And so he's staring at me wide eyed and I'm just like, here's, here's what I've been doing. Like I've been coming to your group and then I would go to the club and like get drunk and dance and sleep with my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just kind of listed all the things that I was doing um, because in college, I just kind of, I just kind of spun out. I didn't really have a, uh, even though I'd been in church my whole life, I didn't ha I didn't know how to live uh, in any way markedly different. I didn't, I didn't have my footing, you know? And um, so he, he began to just teach me some things. I began reading uh, some some spiritual books that I probably wouldn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't touch these days, but mm -hmm. and learning about grace in a new way, a new capacity, and that kind of thing. And Philip Yancey. Yeah, no, I like I still like <laughs> Philip Yancey. He's got he's good. He's he's got a lot of good stuff to say. Um, uh, he he's a journalistic uh, writer, you know. So he he he's not an abstract sort of. Yeah. He anyway. Uh, but yeah, so I started reading the Bible as a 21 year old and got thrust into like a youth pastor interim position. Um, and, uh, cause they fired, fired the guy who, who I had confessed to and convinced me yes. to do a, um, uh, a, uh, summer internship and, um, and they needed somebody to fill in. So I'd been studying the Bible for like six months seriously as an adult, and then I was supposed to teach uh, high schoolers, middle schoolers, and a Sunday school class. Sounds about right for an Enneagram 8. Yeah. Well, I was like, "Are you guys think I can do this? And they're like, yeah, sure, you can do it. And I think they thought it would be a short period of time, but it ended up being like 10 months. And just to help, just to kind of paint a picture, this this non-denominational non church. Yeah. I'm guessing predominantly white. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. And then here's here's you. Yeah. Right. In, in that yeah. context. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the kids, man, they loved me and we had a great time and, um, and I learned a whole lot about just like different things about leadership and was learning about the Bible. And one thing that captivated me was reading the, the gospels mm -hmm. and really looking at the life of Jesus. And I said, you know, I want to, I want to encounter life like Jesus does. And uh, Jesus, I don't think he'd be out, out here, like at this church way out here in the middle of nowhere and doing this, even though I love these kids and, right. and these people and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, I was living in Cordova where my folks had moved to. And uh, so I, I tried to move from Cordova after that, that, um, that uh, uh, youth pastor interim, interim position ended. I tried to move into Orange Mound. And uh, I didn't really know, I didn't really know much about Orange Mound. I just, he was like, well, that's further into the city and mm -hmm. I can afford a place there. I couldn't really find a roommate. I needed a roommate to afford a place there. So I ended up moving right by the U of M. And, but after about six months, I found my way into Binghampton. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, by that time, I was almost 23. And for anybody listening, being Hampton, a neighborhood here in Memphis. Yes. Yeah, it's a neighborhood. It's it's experienced a lot of gentrification over the past you know decade, um, and uh, but when I moved there on the east side of Binghampton, it was still it was still pretty pretty rough place as far as poverty. Um, there's two sides of Binghampton. One's the west side, which is almost like an extension of Midtown in a lot of ways, right. and it's more ethnically diverse, and there's more you know, white people with resources and things like that. And there's a whole history to it. The mm-hmm. two sides of Binghampton, it's separated by railroad tracks. You have to go around or underneath or over the tracks on either side of Binghampton to get into the other side. Mm-hmm. And I moved into the east side into this apartment that had a boarded up window, a uh, piece of plywood over the, the, do- the window and no carpet in the house and, and that kind of thing. And it, I didn't really have a plan. I just, you know, that's just where I wanted to be based on uh, my interpretation of the Gospels. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so as I began interacting with people there, um, it was my first, like, experience uh, with people in poverty on a day-to-day basis. And that really affected me. Mm. And it also affected me, for some reason, I saw a perspective from other Christians that were upper middle class, not all of them were white, most of them were white, but their mentality towards the people there, it didn't make sense to me, it didn't fit right with me. What do you mean with that didn't make sense? Like what didn't fit right or or settle with you? There was a condescending view of the people and and like a, I've gotta teach them everything, I gotta fix everything, you know, they need me to teach them to make better decisions. So like white savior kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of the, the white savior thing. And and kind of when you think about the dichotomy in, in political ideology when it comes to poverty. On the conservative side, it's a if you make good personal decisions and you have high levels of morality, then you will live a good life and you'll have a house and you'll have a car and a good job and everything will work out for you. If you make personally moralistic decisions in life, mm-hmm. and if you don't, you end up poor. Oh. And it just, unfortunately, you know, black culture is is bankrupt. And so, if you're black, you have less of a chance of making it to this lifestyle. So, white white um, culture is just morally superior. Is really the subtext. Mm. Um, as and the liberal. The, the sort of the liberal context of it is it's still it's still paternalistic, but in in a more um, gracious way, I, I think. Um, and it's that, well, if if we change the context, if the people have the right opportunities and the right, um, uh, you know, benefits and programs, then they can succeed. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, both those discussions largely, from what I understand, taking place in a vacuum of history, like no, no really deep historical context to either one. It's just like social programs are good on the liberal side, and that will help people elevate. And on the conservative side, it's no, we need to teach people to be Christian and moral, and then their lives will be good and things will work out for them. 
kind of kind of dichotomy. So, so you're in your mid twenties at this point, living in yeah, twenty three, twenty three, living in East Binghamton, and and really, it seems like so far in your story, you just kind of feel your way into things yeah. so far. Like you kind of felt your way into what to check off on what your ethnicity is. Yeah. You kind of felt your way into Christianity, and then you're living way out east in Cordova, and you're realizing I'm surrounded in this white context. It doesn't make it wrong, but the discussions they're having when they look at the Bible, when I look at the Bible, yeah. identifying as I do, yeah. as a black man at this point, at this point, yeah. I'm there are things that we're not addressing that seem foundational and essential to Scripture. Yeah, and so then you move to obviously into the city, and you're finding this kind of convergence of these these two cultures a right side a left side however people want to break it up right and you're just finding that people seem to be missing each other and so you just settle in there and like you still like you you lived in the east east big camp for a long time i mean i, I guess you still technically do yeah i'm still still on the edge there of of east binghampton yeah, yeah. And, uh-huh. and and then uh like Talk about, about the four, 14, 15 years. Because I I want to I want to get to this part about how we interact with the Bible, but I still yeah. want to show how you found your way to this pastoral piece and the activist piece. So, kind of it seems like for the next ten years after that point, a lot of things start happening for you to to see those two parts of you come together. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, in that apartment, I met I met different people. Uh, because the building was owned by a guy named Soup Campbell, who had a, it's a black guy, had a nonprofit, like a parachurch yep. ministry called Icon. And, um, and so he would, he was looking for what, what's called intentional neighbors, you know, and kind of in quotes there, like people who would come there and kind of like rub shoulders with the people there and kind of help them, yeah, you know, learn about Jesus and, mm-hmm. and, and make better choices and, and those kind of things. And I, I met right off this guy named Pete and he was, uh, nine years older than me. And, and he, he had, uh, was a white guy, grew up going to ECS and went to college, dropped out of college, followed the grateful dead and a bus with people for like a year, lived out in the woods. If everybody and listening, ECS is a, a, a really, uh, like an evangelical, Christian school here in, in East Memphis. Yes. Yeah, pretty prominent private, private Christian right. school. Um, and, uh, he, he, he rejected all this stuff that he kind of grew up with and he, he went through a, a, a divorce and came, came back around to his, his Christian faith. And he was living in this same building and he had this vision for intentional community. Mm-hmm. And, at, you know, at the time I had, these really fledgling ideas about, you know, living out what I saw the life Jesus was living in community seemed to be a huge part of that. So I was kind of on board for that idea. And, um, were you a teacher at this point? Yeah. I, I had finished school, uh, when I was 22, finished my undergraduate degree in actually in fine art. So hadn't touched any of that, the art side of things, but, um, you know, Enneagram eights don't have, there you go. Don't have clear, simple stories usually. That's it. Uh, yeah. So moved there and saw and, and met him and we started this community together of people of the, just the regular neighbors that live there and the, the other folks. And in the process, I met a, I met a guy, a uh, black guy named Steve and he, he, he had served prison time. 
and became a Christian there and got out. And there was a guy named Andrew Riley, Pastor Andrew Riley, who had really helped him get on his feet. And I started with Steve going to that house church in Hickory Hill. It's a black suburb of of Memphis. Um, And... uh, And eventually, so the community was was doing things, the intentional community, and I was also part of this black house church. And eventually those things started to overlap into a house church there where I lived in Binghampton as well. Also, very important influence right around that time when I was 23 is I started reading James Baldwin, Hmm. who would not call himself a Christian or a theologian, but um, I I think he is a theologian. Hmm. And he really illuminated more than any other writer, any other teacher that I had in person mm-hmm. about, uh, about race and Christianity and religion and the societal framework of, 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 of racism and, and the American project. Um, and, and he really gave a poetic and deeply intellectual a uh, voice to those things in a way that still is completely captivating to me mm. and has helped to frame my understanding of those things uh, more than any of the any specific teacher I had in my life. And this was a public James Baldwin being a public figure during the civil rights movement in the 60s. But then also carrying his work forward in the 70s and he he passed away in the 80s, in the early, 80s. early early 80s. Yeah, he was young. He he came to, he had cancer. Yeah. Uh and you know, so in in during civil rights, it was it was Malcolm, right, and Martin. Mm. But then, like, there was this this person a lot of people always didn't recognize as far as prominent time, like a James Baldwin. Yeah, yeah. A couple of books, just as a footnote for people that are listening, that kind of captivated you. Yeah, the the fire next time is a is a couple of essays that you might recognize a successor of that is Tennessee Coates, mm. Between the World and Me. In yep. fact, that title comes from. The fire next time. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so that that was the uh, that that was one of the most um, captivating pieces of literature that I had read in my life at that point, um, next to the Bible itself, and, um, and and at the time because of of how I had learned to think about the Bible and theology, those things didn't get to exist in the same space. There were all these compartments in my head where these where these art artists lived and where Baldwin and other activists lived and then where like the the theologians and the and the Christian writers lived and and so there was all kind of these different these different compartments there. And those though started coming together for you as you cuz if I get this right you were attending this house church but then you started a house church. Yeah. Right where you were living in that yeah. apartment complex, uh-huh. and and this is where these things started melting for you, this place of being a pastor and this place of even taking to the streets and protests and being active in your your views and understanding of what's happening and what needs to be changed culturally. Yeah, I think so. Again, there's just a there's a lot of pieces to the story, but sure. During the, during the house church period and the intentional community period, I felt like my main act of protest where I would attend things and do things, but my main act of protest was a protest on the way society had said, this is how you come up in the world. This is how you have to live. Mm-hmm. I was sharing possessions with people. I was sharing physical space with people, had commu- 
uh, communal space in my home where, you know, there were times when, you know, somebody without a home was sleeping in my bed, mm. you know, and where we had, where we shared resources, shared laundry room and, and shared meals and all those kind of things. And then the house church was, I, I, I made no effort to reach out beyond just the neighborhood of people and just whoever in the neighborhood, um, you know, wanted to come. And I, I saw a guy, you know, who'd become a Muslim in prison, a guy named Trey, who I love dearly. Um, he, uh, he, he's, you know, he was sitting there in the house church and he's like, I think I'm a Christian now. I'm like, well, let's baptize you. So baptize him in the backyard. And so before I was doing much like attending, you know, protests, mm -hmm. it was really, it, I came to see my, my, the way I lived mm. as kind of a form of protest to what's how society had created this hierarchy and this, this structure of what success looked like. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, so I want to, I want to shift gears for a minute because um, you know, one of the things that, you know, you're passionate about is, is preaching. And when we talk about preaching, preaching out of scripture. Yeah. Right. And taking the Bible and letting it speak to us now, but also recognizing it, you know, for when it was written, all those kinds of things. And, uh, one of the things that can be really hard for people to, to reconcile and really deal with in the Bible is how it's just filled with slavery yeah. throughout and how there even seem to be moments supposedly endorsed by God in scripture, mm -hmm. uh, whether, whether we see it in the old Testament, right. Um, or, or even, even with, with Jesus using some, um, some of his, uh, parables. parables. Yeah. And, and he'll reference these things in there. And uh, so I'd be curious, how do you reconcile this with all the things that kind of let, and I wanted to take time to really, um, for you to unpack how you got to you, yeah, right? right? And all these things coming together. Um, so like, how do you interact with scripture around that? And how do you interpret those things? And then how do you even try to even communicate those things today? Like, do we just skip it all? Do we engage? I mean, what do we do with it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's not a surprise, but I really appreciate how Robin, you recognize the importance experience plays and how we view the scriptures mm -hmm. or any written text. And as an educator, I know that no one reads the same text twice that because you've had experiences in between the first time you read it and the next time you've read it. Right. And that uh, to comprehend a text means to be a co-creator of meaning with the text. That's how an educator would describe that. Oh, that's great. And so to to say that, um, you know, like the, the, the social justice statement that uh, John MacArthur put out, I think in 2018. And Anybody listening to John MacArthur? Um, Prominent evangelical in the reform stream pastor out in California, Southern California, white dude, really well known. Yeah, yep. yeah, kind of in the towards the end of his you know his heyday, yep. kind of thing. But he he put out this statement, and is just some very, um, uh, very arrogant um, sort of 
stance on this objective idea of social justice that he he and many others signed off on and i don't i don't think it's very easy to get to that point and stay at that point i know many young black men who who have been at that point, even prime, like, you know, I, I met Lecrae, the rapper Lecrae, who's a Grammy award winning rapper, uh, in, um, in Binghampton. When I was there, he was there in, in, in the beginning and we rode together to this Bible study thing we did. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, he was, he and all his buddies were there. Like we would have arguments about it. He was like a John Piperite and all that stuff. So I know guys who, who start there, but they don't usually stay there. Yeah. Because they get too much cognitive dissonance as it goes on yep. about what they've experienced and uh, what what these what these guys are, are spitting, and um, so experience is 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 incredibly important. And it it if you don't acknowledge how it shapes your view of the scriptures, then you're even more reckless and dangerous with it. Mm-hmm. And so this, this idea that you can have a pure objective theology, I think it's very hard to maintain that position unless you've lived a life of considerable privilege. Mm-hmm. And so there's a humility of coming to a text like the Bible. I can remember reading the book of Ephesians in our community with some visitors that were with us. We were reading through the entire book of Ephesians. And this girl who, who was a, a white hippie was like, I can't get down with this stuff, what he just said about slavery. Hmm. And I remember going downstairs and starting to do a word search on slavery in the Bible oh, wow. and trying to reconcile it for myself hmm. uh, because I hadn't really, I was just grooving in the gospels. Right, right. You know, and I'm like, man, there is a lot of slavery in this book. Yeah. You know, what What am I going to do with that? <laughs> like, is this real? Is God, yeah. you know, is, is, you know, it's like if you've got that, sort of infallibility clause, the idea that the Bible's absolutely true on all things at all times and it's timeless and, you know, it, it, then one thing like that can crumble your whole faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you haven't had a list of discrepancies of identity in your life already, like I did, filling out half the black and the white bubble, right. then it can, it can be too much and you have to just, you just have to, to draw a line and, and stand on one side or the other kind of thing. I didn't feel like I had to do that. So I could just honestly wrestle, you know, uh, with those things. And, and, and the place that I, that I ended up in is, is essentially that, um, you know, the Bible is a book that has a historical context to it. And um, so if the Bible has points where it endorses slavery, um, well, that makes sense in an ancient world where all cultures, all main cultures that we know of, practice some form of voluntary and voluntary servitude, involuntary and voluntary servitude. So there are right. different. And so the, 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 the more if you, if you fall in the infallibility of scripture camp, you, that's what you have to kind of dance around and nuances, try to like, well, the slavery wasn't the same as the slavery that we've rejected right. uh, in the United States. It was a better slavery. It was like, it was nicer, <laughs> you know, but, but you can read in like the book of Exodus 
you know, being said, like, this is what God is saying to you guys. Like, hey, Israelites, you treat your, if the, you if you have an, a slave who's an Israelite, like, here's how you treat them. Mm-hmm. If they're not an Israelite, you can beat them pretty good. Mm-hmm. Like, you can, you can beat, if they die, then that's not good. And, like, there's this consequence or whatever. But if they recover after three to five days, you know, you're good mm-hmm. kind of thing. I'm like, hmm, how... <laughs> How could that be God speaking? <laughs> you know, that's, that's, uh, it's problematic to try to justify that. Yeah. And if you come well, from you a heritage. you used cognitive dissonance earlier, it creates that if you try to justify it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you, then you start to have to draw so many lines between reality yeah. and theology. Yeah. And when, when you do that, when you get, when theology gets so far away from reality, I don't think it's, I don't think it's useful in a positive way in the world. Hmm. It's not just not useful. It becomes uh, a potentially a force of evil mm-hmm. uh, because you can justify things as many people have done throughout history. Um, you can justify things that are evil and wicked. Well, so since we said, since you said that, let me kind of take it to this question here. So um, people, uh, people, if they don't know, I'm, I'm sure they are well informed around like slave Bibles and, and, and what uh, African-Americans were given, right, in the propaganda of their white slave owners. And, and I'm, I'm just curious, I'm going to phrase it this way, and then you take it however you want. How has this idea that slavery is allowed, some people would even use sometimes like the word like necessary in the development of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... How is it that slavery, because it ties to how you're talking about scripture, right? How people, however you talk about scripture and however you're going to deal with it will lead to, and with American history, the things that were justified. So how is this idea that slavery is allowed and are necessary in the development of the world made its way into American and Christian culture in America today? Like, yeah, kind of bring bring us to that point Mm -hmm. 200 plus years ago and and what's in the water there. Yeah. So if we start. If we start in a, in America and the the conol, uh, uh, colonialization of, um, of of America, there was this idea that can be it could be traced back a lot further, but we don't need to do that here. Uh, called manifest destiny, and you know it was it was it was the idea that people of European descent, uh, wealthy European males had something and and christianity uh in in the version that they had of it was part of this is that they had had a a destiny to fulfill to rule over the world and um this uh this idea exists in 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 many different uh, cultures and religions and and marrying of of politics and, and and religion which is just what human beings do we we marry those things it's right. it's always been that way um and and so there was there was was this this idea that um we're just supposed to conquer stuff yeah. and take over things and we'll create a better life for the people than they could create for themselves like look at what these savages how they live and what they do um all the while, huge misunderstandings. For example, like the Native Americans have a had an extremely sophisticated system of farming, 
uh, living in harmony with the forest and planting and cultivating, moving next to a forest and then positioning plants and things like that to grow uh, in complementary ways and create pathways of food and all that kind of stuff. And the Europeans come and they're trying to plant you know, rows and acres of wheat and it's all dying and they're dying and the, and the Native Americans help them survive. Yeah. But yet somehow they're able to look because of their, their ideologies and their religious perspective and say, these people are inferior. We need to rule over them in order for progress to happen. Yeah. So this Western European mindset of progress, which really we could, we could go all the way back to the Romans about this right. um, and, and probably further. Uh, would you would have to have that in the waters and in the blood of your your reasoning systems to be able to make a statement about slavery like that slavery was necessary mm. for progress mm. it's like what what do you mean by progress and whose progress and to what end mm -hmm. what what's the end and so if it, depending on what your end is you can you can try to justify it with any, any, any sort of means. So even bringing that back to my, my contentional community uh, days, that was a big part of it is, is a protest against this idea of what progress means, bigger, faster, you know, more technology, more ease, more comfort in these areas for a few at the expense of the many. Mm. So uh, back around your question was mm -hmm. about, you know, this this perspective of slavery as like almost a necessary ingredient for humanity to move forward, to yeah. move forward. Mm -hmm. and um, and then the idea that manifest destiny in in the states here was sort of a a, a more recent development of that idea, mm -hmm. and that we are the product of that way of thinking and our culture and that society. So that experience, that historical lived generational experience makes it possible for somebody to honestly say, well, well, but you know, slavery in the Bible, like, didn't we need that at some point or at some level? God condoned it. At yeah. Some level, like the consciousness. Yeah. Of why would uh, somebody that was talking with me about, yeah, yeah, Jamin, it says that. Why do you think God would do that? Cocking their head at me. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm just going to. We'll keep it clean here. <laughs> take, yeah. Take a deep breath for a moment. Yeah. Uh, and you, of course it's been, you, slavery is not, you, I want to be clear, slavery is not unique to America. Slavery is not unique to Christians using it over the centuries and millenniums. Like you can go back to Babylon, Babylon you can go back to Persia, like all kind of, yeah. there, there is this thing in humans to be against or to conquer. It's yeah. kind of always been there. And and this isn't what we're talking about here. Isn't to co try to cover all that. That's a whole other right. series of podcasts, and yes. series of books, right? That's right. Um, but but within our context here, you know, e even when you think of kind of the the evolution though of Roman thought and enlightenment, um, that that you know, America, many would even say like America is kind of the crescendo of what all this philosophy and reason of Roman thought had led to. And you think back to like what fourth century and Constantine and. And, and melding together this empire and the Bible, yeah, right? And just how it kind of led, it kept growing and growing and growing. And, and here we have this culmination of America and a, a, a story now of this country that is 
it, it, it's not founded upon the principles we would think it's always founded upon, life, liberty, and pursuit, pursuit of happiness, happens. right? Without there being slaves that were brought over yeah. to build the Washington Monument, to build all these parts yeah. in D.C., to build America. Yeah. 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 That's, there's, there's like, there's the, the footnote of, you know, three fifths, three fifths of a man. And of course we don't mean women. We, or, or people that don't own land, like, mm-hmm. yes, you know, that life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, but wink, wink, we all know who that's really for mm-hmm. because that's what's necessary to, to do what's best for everybody. Yes. Which that's where we, that's, that's where we dip our toes into the ideology of white supremacy mm-hmm. that evolved out of all that, that, that yep. short breeze of, of, of Western history you, you, you just gave us. Well, and so... Because I, I want to get to some really defining, uh, like some some clear ways to define when we talk about white supremacy and ideology and those things. But before we do that, so let's lead into it with this. Uh, right now in 2020, we're in July of 2020, uh, and at the the execution really of George Floyd, just almost May 25th. May 25th, right? So. At the execution of George Floyd, which for many people over the years, what they would say was, is that here's someone who was, who the, the police detained and, and they would have looked past it, right? And, and he died uh, in, in being detained, but being recorded. And, um, uh, and it set ablaze protests for weeks that are really still going to, to today. And so here we are in weeks of protests and it wasn't just George's uh, uh, murdering; it was Brianna, right, and, mm-hmm. and Ahmad, um, Ahmad and, and others, and others, Eric, and others that have been yeah. happening. They're coming to light here. So, he, here's here's what I'm wondering: like, why are these protests happening? And I, I'm going to give kind of a really simple response that I is founded in in white supremacist ideals, right, mm-hmm. um, in a whitewashed world here. But it is. We abolish slavery, so whatever is missing in, in black America is their fault, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of the idea right. that, that, that's being pushed against. Yeah. So, but let's just talk for a little bit or for a while about these protests, what's happening, and what is it that we have, we've been missing over and over again that has led to this crescendo at this moment? Hey guys, this is Stacy Martin. I'm one of the elders at Christ City, and you've just heard part one of a three-part podcast, a conversation between pastors Robin and Jamin about Jamin's journey toward becoming a pastor and an activist. And I love, for me, the empathy that comes up when I hear those word pictures of him as a teenager exploring um, what it means to be not black, not white, but not other also. Um, I loved the picture of him running down the stairs to search for the word slavery in the Bible. And those pictures of, you know, where his story, where his origin story begins, um, for me, go so far in understanding who he is and understanding more about why he says what he says on Sunday morning. So I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Um, Stay tuned for part two, where we explore kind of the wider context of protests and racism in our country today.